me ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll dive into our study. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here in this room. Uh, we're so grateful for your truth, and we hunger for it, O oh God. And that's why uh, folks make time out of their week to come out to hear even more, even after the Lord's Day. And so we pray that as we look at your word, that we would be encouraged and that you would be magnified in our eyes so that we would behold your glory a little more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So let me begin just by saying that theology is practical, or at least theology should be practical. Um, we can get into this mindset, this kind of rut, that we learn all of these high and lofty things, but then it just kind of stays in an intellectual level. It doesn't affect our hearts. It doesn't impact the way that we live. And I would submit to you that that is not proper theology. That's not really the way that God intends for us to study him. God intends for us to know him and know things about him, but that our knowledge of him would actually impact our hearts and would have an impact on our lives and so on, right? So theology should be practical. And that is what our aim is as a church whenever we study any kind of doctrines or, or look at the word in any kind of context. So that's our aim tonight as well, as we look, continue to look at uh, this topic from the 1689, or otherwise known as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We've stepped away from this for a while because uh, uh, I started to preach more, and when I preached more, Pastor Corey stepped in and started teaching Colossians. And so because we're kind of removed from this study, uh, let's just review with some questions. So just as a reminder as well, is that the format of these studies is typically more conversational, uh, whereas over the summer it was purely didactic and, and proclamatory. So uh, let's warm up, right? So what is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in a nutshell? What is this document? Emmy. Ooh, that's a great way to describe it. A baby systematic theology. So a systematic theology, when you see books like this thick, whether it's uh, Grudem or um, Millard Erickson or Frame or Bovink, what they're trying to do is here are the chapters in all of these subjects. And each of these subjects, we want to see what all of the Bible says on these topics. Um, the 1689 is only like this thick. So Emmy rightly, correctly calls it a mini systematic theology. It's a document that tries to capture the basic essential elements of, uh, at least I would say in this case, the Reformed Baptist faith. It says more than just the basic Christian faith because there's a lot of things in it that not all Christians will agree to. But remember that in the 1600s, um, certain groups started to break off of the Church of England during their civil war. And they needed to assert, they needed to establish, here's what we believe as an organization. So the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith was basically the document of a group um, by, called the Particular Baptists. And what, that, what made them different from the Church of England was A, they were credo-baptist. What does credo-baptist mean? Say it again. Um, it's, it means something, good guess, good, good word there, but it means something else in it, yeah. Another good guess, that's not what we're looking for, good, yes sir. You got it, you got it. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the Church of England were paedo-baptists, which would mean that they would baptize children, um, some of the group that broke off from the Church of England were still Pado baptists They were known as the Congregationalists. I don't even know if you're going to care about this in the future, but it's fun. It's interesting to me, right? So you have the Congregationalists, and then you have the Baptists, who believe that only believers should be baptized. And we'll make a case as we go along with the confession. So credo means believer, and then baptism, baptism. Believers only baptism. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, you got it. So it's believers only baptism, that's credo Baptists. Um, so that's in, in Reformed. In other words, they were particular Baptists, meaning that uh, between, within Baptists, you had general Baptists and particular Baptists, uh, which is basically the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. 
I feel like I'm getting too far into the weeds here, so my apologies. But the point is, this is a historical document that established what the particular Baptists believe in the 1600s. Why are, why are we even spending time on it if it was some document 400 years ago? Why are we spending time on it? Yeah, Julian. Okay, good point. So the, uh, the, it's staying power over 400 years tells us something. Good, why else? Yeah, Mike. It helps us to understand Right on. So it helps us to understand the particulars of our faith and what, what sets us apart from other brothers and sisters. That's a good way to put it. Because we wouldn't say that if you're a Christian, you're going to believe like everything that's in this document. But it represents what our church believes pretty well and specifically what the pastors teach. Uh, and so... What we want you to be able to, to see is that what we hold to as pastors is biblical, that we're not just basing it on something some Englishman said in the 1600s, but that it's actually biblical. And that um, maybe as we continue to grow as a church, we can say that this is a solid document. This is what we believe, which makes it really easier when it comes to unity. I know that sounds weird, because it's like, how does a document that gets so specific about doctrine promote unity? It's because... We could say this is what our church believes and there's no surprises and there's no room for controversy in the church because this is what the church believes the Bible teaches. So that is uh, in a quick re recap of what the 1689 confession is. Now, we do want to say right off the bat, we don't hold this document as an authority higher than the Bible. It's only authoritative in as much as it accurately describes what the Bible teaches, right? So for example, if I were to say to you, Jesus is God, that actually, that phrase is not in the Bible. So, but it is authoritative because the Bible teaches it. Does that make sense? So we look to this as a guide for our conversation, but our scriptures are our ultimate authority. Anything that this confession says that is not biblical, we will throw out. But we were gonna examine everything line by line. So the first thing is, uh, let me go back to this idea that everything is practical. Theology is practical. Um, when we left off in the 1689, we found ourselves on the subject of divine providence. Does everybody have one of these, by the way? If you don't, Julian, would you please bring up a, uh, a couple of these, please? So the doctrine essentially teaches, uh, according to what we see in the scriptures, is that God, from all eternity, decreed all of history and has throughout all of history been providentially working out his plan, right? That could just make us really prideful in learning that, but how does it actually affect you? How does it actually apply to you? That's what we're looking at today. And one of the topics that we've been looking at, two of the topics, God uses a believer's sin for his or her good. And you gotta think about how does that affect you? Uh, God uses everything for a believer's good. How does that affect you? So that's what we're gonna seek to try to answer tonight those two, those two things uh, as we look at these subjects. But let's take a look first of all at this quote from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter five, paragraph five, and here's what it says. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. Paragraph 6, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as the righteous judge for former sin does blind and harden, from them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Now we're going to, of course, break that down a lot, 
and focus just for today on this first paragraph of paragraph five, but it was appropriate for us to look at those together. Because what we're seeing in those paragraphs is God is essentially doing the same thing for both groups of people, believers and unbelievers, with different effects. Okay? Does that make sense? God is doing basically the same thing for believers and unbelievers, but the effects are different. And God's purposes for doing the things are different. So we're going to focus on God's, the way that he interacts in his providence with believers. And you'll notice there in paragraph 5, the first one, that at first it appeals to God's character. God is most wise. He's righteous. He's gracious. We're not going to argue for those things here in this particular point because we've already made that case when we were talking about of God in, earlier in this study. But we're, we're looking at this subject with a foundation of the reality that God is wise, that he knows what he's doing, that he's righteous, not only what he's doing, that not only does he know what he's doing, but what he's doing is righteous. And not only is it righteous, but it's also gracious, that what he does for his people is gracious. And what it says if of this most wise, righteous, and gracious God is that he does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. So here's where we get to this like nitty-gritty of our own lives. Because do you not experience God sometimes allowing you to fall into sin? And sometimes serious sin and long-lasting sin? And it may make us wonder, why is God allowing this to happen? Raise your hand if you've ever considered the question, why didn't God just make me perfect immediately? Right? Okay, so we're seeing some hands. Andrew, did you have a question? No, I thought you were going to ask a different question. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because we know that's the end. We know that in the end we will be sinless, praise God. We will no longer struggle with temptation or sin, praise God. Why are we still going through this? And the answer that the confession gives, and we'll look at the scriptures to see if it's true, is to chastise them for their former sins. In other words, God allows us to suffer temptation and sin to discipline us for our previous sins that we've committed, or to discover unto them the hidden strength or of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. In other words, the more that God allows us to sin, the more that he allows us to face temptations, the more we realize just how messed up our hearts were before God made them new. The more we realize how, how affected we are by the flesh. So God allows that to continue to happen. And then the next phrase says, that they may be humbled. God brings us low so that we may be humbled. Question for you. Uh, why is it good for us to be humbled? Yeah, Julian. Amen. So um, the Bible, I'm sorry, God. Yeah, the Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if God brings us to humility, that opens up an op- the door for him to show us grace. Yes. The more we know God, the more we'll know who we are. Right on. So uh, there's a correlation between the more we know God, the more humble we ourselves will be because we realize who we are in comparison to him. Good. Yeah, Albert. Yeah, the first sin committed was due to pride, right? Yeah. The serpent tells Eve, you know, you're not going to die. The reality is God just does not want you to be like him. Like, that's what, that's what Satan appeals to, right? That's a good point. It's also, when we're talking about for our good, is it, does it benefit us to be prideful? No, it only hurts us, right? So whatever God commands is for his glory, but it's also for our good. So if God commands us to be humble, that's for our good. If God makes us humble through circumstances, that's for our good. It's because he loves us. That, that they may be humble, it says. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. So it helps us to realize we need God. We need to trust in him. We need, we need his support. Now, at first, listen, that might hit your ear funny, and we need to talk, we need to think through that, right? Because 
if I treated my wife a certain way uh, so that she realized she needs me, that, uh, as in the words of Daniel Navarro, that's toxic, Pastor Ed, right? <laughs> so why is, it, why is it actually good and right for God to reveal to us through our circumstances that we need him? Why is it not okay for me, but it's actually good and right for God to do that? Yeah, Mike. He's perfect and we're not, right? Good. I'm, I'm not the perfect person that my wife actually needs. Why else? Why is it good for God to reveal to his people our need of him? Yeah, Andrew. Because he's the creator and he's specifically designed that to be our need. Yeah, he's the creator and he's designed, uh, designed that to specifically be our need. Good point. Yep, mm-hmm. Right, so we think we know people and how they're going to act, but God actually knows, and he's perfect in his thinking. It's a good point. And the truth is, we actually do need him, right? Like, Megan, I can be a benefit to her, but she doesn't need me. I mean, if the Lord were to take me, she'd be fine, right? But for God, like, if, if he were not for us, we would be in trouble, right? So we actually do need him, and it's good for us to recognize we need him. It's for our benefit to recognize we need him. Any person who lives this life pretending like they don't need God, they suffer. They think that they're doing well, but they're actually going to be brought low because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, again, it's, it's actually for our good that he shows us, you need me, and he actually is a support for us. And then the confession goes on to say, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And you probably experience this too. You've sinned. Hopefully, by God's mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit, you learn from that. You, you, you don't just do it over again. I'm reminded of um, my daughter right now. She's 15 months old, and I'll, we'll just let her play with stuff, right? And she'll open the drawer, and one time, like, she shut the drawer. It wasn't very hard, but she shut it on her fingers, and she started panicking because she couldn't get it out. And I let that happen. I knew it wasn't going to hurt her very bad, but I knew she would learn from it too, right? And now when she's closing it, rather than close it like this, she closes it like this. She's not a dummy. She knows if I, if I try it the same way, I'm gonna get stuck, right? So she pushes it like this. And in the same way, when God allows us to face the consequences of our sin, that teaches us something. It, it makes us more watchful about future occasions of sin. And then you have this all-encompassing phrase in the next one, and for other just and holy ends. In other words, God has greater purposes that we can't grasp. Uh, John Piper once said when he's doing one thing, he's doing 10,000 things. And so for us, we're only thinking of this one situation. But really, and we'll actually see that in this example, God is doing all sorts of things with even one situation that he puts you through. So again, these are great claims. I think it's sound. But let's take a look at the Bible to see if what the confession is claiming is true. The first passage we'll look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 32. 2 Chronicles 32. And in the Old Testament, just, by, just so you know, it goes, it goes the Samuels, the Kings, and then the Chronicles. So we're in 2 Chronicles 32. King Hezekiah, the man we're going to see in verses 25 through 31, is actually a pretty good king compared to other kings that Judah has had. He's known for doing great reforms, uh, even though he didn't tear down the high places uh, or rather eradicate idolatry from the land. He's also known for um, holding off the Assyrian invasion. So here we have Hezekiah, and in verse 24, it just tells us in 2 Chronicles 32 that Hezekiah became sick and he was at the point of death and he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. So he's very sick, he's about to die, he cries out to God and God delivers him from death. He, he lives for another 15 years. And then we read in verses 25 through 26, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud. 
Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And then in verses 27 through 30, it outlines just how rich and how lavish God had blessed Hezekiah. It says um, that he has got great riches and honor. He made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfold. We get the idea here. He, is, he has made Hezekiah and Judah very rich in this time. It almost echoes who? What does this sound like to you? All of these riches and uh, Joseph, yes. Who else? Solomon, you got it. Yeah, this reminds us of King Solomon, of all of his riches as well. And then in verse 31, we jump down. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So uh, the, the chronicler here is kind of condensing what happened. We see this in Kings, where essentially um, these, these envoys, these ambassadors from Babylon, they come and they try to see what happened. Because remember, Hezekiah was near death. He survived. And God showed Hezekiah a sign somehow. And this had spread throughout the lands. And the Babylonians were curious. Maybe they were interested in striking up an alliance with Israel, Judah against Assyria. And so what Hezekiah did uh, in his foolishness, I will say, is that he showed the Babylonian envoys all of his treasures. He gave them access to everything, right? He showed them just how lavish Judah was. Now, we've been in Isaiah for a little bit, so what happened with Babylon like a hundred years later? Um, yeah, Babylon conquers Judah, right? So this is a direct result of Hezekiah showing off all of his stuff to the Babylonian ambassadors, right? But in this situation, we see God's purpose of why he had done this. At the end of verse 31, it says, God left him to himself. What do you think that means, God left him to himself? Um, that's a good guess. I, I probably wouldn't go that. You said uh, removing the spirit. Not necessarily. Good guess. Left him to his own sin. What's it? Tita Cora? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great way to put it. Left him to his own devices, right? So basically, here's the test. The Babylonian envoys are coming. The test, you, you do it. You figure out what you're going to do. Is God just in doing that, in letting people kind of figure it out? Yeah, why? Yeah, he doesn't need to be with them. Exactly. So any assistance that he gives people is grace. It's mercy. Hezekiah didn't deserve for God to get in there and intervene. So it was just for him to let Hezekiah do what he was going to do. And it says here that he left him to himself, verse 31, in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart, right? So we often hear, and it's a correct phrase, God doesn't tempt us, but he what? He tests us. He tests us. This is kind of an interesting idea, though, is to say that to know all that was in his heart. Uh, there's a couple ways that commentaries address this. Either it's that it's to allow Hezekiah to know what's in his heart. So it's like it's revealing to Hezekiah what's in his heart which is possible, or it's saying so that God would know all that was in his heart. But that poses a theological problem because God does not need to do tests in order to know what's in somebody's heart. God knows what's in everyone's heart already, right? Uh, so what we're seeing here, if it is the latter, if it is saying so that God would know what was in Hezekiah's heart, this is what we know, what we know theologically as an anthropomorphism anthropomorphism, which essentially means that human language is used to describe something that God is doing, 
in order for us to grasp something that is kind of too large for us to grasp. All right. So a good example of this would be the Tower of Babel. What does the Bible say God did when it came to the Tower of Babel before he judged? He, yeah, he, he came down to see the size of this tower. Well, let me see about this tower, right? Does God need to actually move to see anything? Did God need to descend to see the Tower of Babel? No. He had already seen the Tower of Babel. In fact, he saw it before they even thought about building it, right? He, he had foreseen and actually decreed that that would happen. So what it is, it's just, it's anthropomorphic language to describe something. It's, it's almost like actually in that, in that particular situation, it's an insult to the tower because they think this is a huge tower and God actually has to like, oh, let me go, let me go check it out because it's not as big as they think it is, right? So it's anthropomorphic language in this case where God already knows what's in his heart, but God is purposing this situation to reveal what is in Hezekiah's heart. And in this case, the pride that was in him before when he uh, was supposed to respond to God's deliverance with gratitude. Did I skip over that? I think I did. When he was sick, God healed him in verse 25. But it says that he did not make return according to the benefit done to him. In other words, what sh- how should you respond to God when he answers your prayers? Thanksgiving. What did you say, Titicor? Oh, gratitude. Oh, gratitude. Yeah, worship, obedience, it should make us want to obey him even more. And for whatever reason, actually tells us why, because his heart was proud. Hezekiah did not actually respond in that way. Therefore, God's wrath was kindled against Hezekiah and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah, verse 26, humbled himself for the pride of his heart, not just him, but the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so wrath, God's wrath did not come upon them in Hezekiah's days. So God was going to uh, have his wrath on the people, but Hezekiah repented, so God relented of that destruction. And then later in this situation with the Babylonian envoys, it's like the test is, is he still as prideful as he was before? Answer ended up being yes. So God left him to himself. He allowed Hezekiah to be tempted. And the purpose of Hezekiah's being tempted was to reveal what was in Hezekiah's heart. And that's sometimes what God does when he leaves his people, if you will, to their own devices. If his people do not rely on the Holy Spirit, they don't, they don't walk by the Holy Spirit, and they instead they want to follow the desires of their flesh, God will sometimes let them do that. And you know that's true for you and me because we sin. If, if God did not want us to sin, he could prevent us from doing so. Uh, this is a, that was a sticky uh, statement, so I got to back it up a little bit, okay? If it was God's will for us not to sin, then he could stop us from doing so. But he allows us to sin. He is not pleased by our sin. It goes against his moral will, but he allows us to sin for whatever good purposes that he has. That's what he did with Hezekiah here. And by the way, when we talk about that phrase in the confession, for other just and holy ends, we see that God actually had greater good purposes for Hezekiah's tomfoolery a hundred years before the Babylonians took Judah into exile, right? Because what ended up happening after God allowed Judah to be taken into exile into Babylon? What happened? Or else I'm starting Isaiah over. What did God do? So Judah is taken to Babylon for exile. That includes the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of that stuff. But what does God do to show his power through all that? Yeah, one example is that he actually changes the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. True. Great point. Yeah. Very good points. And forgive me, what are your names again? Justin and Leslie. Justin and Leslie. So sorry. Justin and Leslie, good to have you here. So yes, uh, if Hezekiah does not do this, then we don't have these amazing deliverances in Daniel. 
these amazing stories that we look at. See, look, how, look what God has done in delivering Daniel from the lion's den. Or look what God has done with this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dancing around in the fiery furnace with a fourth person. This was a result of Hezekiah's sin hundreds of years before. And then what about King Cyrus? Remember King Cyrus, this, this guy from the east and the north who doesn't even worship Yahweh, and yet God makes it easy for Cyrus to trample over all of the enemies to deliver God's people out of exile. So God uses Hezekiah's foolishness to discipline his people for 70 years and then deliver them in a mighty way, which then eventually points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and actually preserves his line in order for that to happen, all right? So that is, again, just other just and holy ends. Uh, Second Chronicles, let's take a look there. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, very similar names. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So in this context, Paul is talking about these visions and revelations that he's been given from the Lord. He speaks about this other man, which we realize later he's talking about himself, but he's distancing himself from it because he's trying to stay humble, right? So this, this other man, who is him, is caught up into heaven. And then what we see in verses 7 through 9 is this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, Paul sees these incredible visions and revelation of heaven, the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and he says that God gives him a thorn in the flesh, or or rather, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. What exactly this thorn was, um, scholars have debated for centuries. Some think that it's talking about people, like the false teachers that were um, trying to outdo Paul, these super apostles. Um, Something, it could have been a physical ailment. It could have been his vision. Um, one preacher gave, I thought, a compelling case that maybe it was a kidney stone. Like, it's, I mean, come on. That feels like a thorn in the flesh. Like, I think it's possible. But the point is, whatever this thorn is, Paul prays for God to remove it three times. He prays for him over and over again. God, remove this from me. And then in verse 9, God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And by the way, this, this thorn, this messenger of Satan, was given to Paul to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Do you, do you think potentially that seeing visions of heaven could make you conceited? You think, well, no, that would probably make me humble. But <laughs> I, th- I think at some points in our Christian walk, we have, we've come to this point where we, we never even saw a vision of heaven, but maybe we landed on some theological doctrine and gotten really conceited about it, right? Like, we, oh, wow, I can't believe others don't see this. <laughs> it's like you just learned about it two minutes ago, right? <laughs> but we get that way. That's our tendency. And apparently that was Paul's tendency as well. And so God, knowing that and not allowing his servant to depart from the truth, in order to keep him from becoming conceited, allows this thorn given in the flesh. And by the way, also, it says a messenger of Satan, we, we know that ultimately the thorn was from God, but we also know that God uses means to accomplish his ends. Think about Job, for example. How did Job suffer all of that loss? What was the means that God used to allow that to happen? Satan, right. So God didn't directly torment Job, but he allowed Satan to do so. But in allowing Satan to do so, because he can stop Satan from doing anything he wants, God did that according to his purpose. So this same thing as this messenger of Satan, uh, it was God's will, but Satan was the, uh, the delivery person of this thorn in the flesh. So the, the lesson that God is teaching Paul in this situation is, my grace is sufficient for you. 
This is, this is the takeaway that Paul is supposed to have from this conceit-preventing thorn in the flesh, is that he wants to teach Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul might think, God, if I'm going to be an effective missionary to the Gentiles, I can't have this thorn in the flesh. And God said, you can have the thorn in the flesh. My grace is going to be sufficient for you. And then he, yes, uh-huh. A great question. Let me, um, let me build up to that. The question was, uh, that so we can start stewing on it, what would it look like to boast in our weakness? Okay. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. How does that work? In other words, what we're seeing here is that the way that God displays his power is by showing comparison to weakness, right? So if Paul has this thorn in the flesh and yet continues onward to continue to be this uh, most prominent missionary in all of church history, uh, it shows God's power in that. It wasn't because Paul was healthy and spry. It was because in spite of the thorn in the flesh, God's power is stronger than all of that. Uh, this reminds us of, of Egypt and Pharaoh. So Romans 9 quotes Exodus when essentially God says to Paul, or I'm sorry, not Paul, God says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed to all the nations. So in that situation, which I think we'll probably get to in the next paragraph of chapter 5, but in that situation God allowed Pharaoh to get powerful so that when he crushed Pharaoh, it showed his power all the more. So another analogy of this is, I can't remember his name, but he can bench press 789 pounds, which is a few pounds more than I can do, right? <laughs> but the, the only way that you understand the strength of that is if you yourself have ever tried to lift anything, right? When you, when, if you can bench press like only 150 or something, then 789 is like, wow, that guy's powerful. And that's the same kind of thing. When God compares his power to something that is weak, it displays his power all the more. That was God's purpose for this uh, thorn in the flesh, in addition to keeping Paul from becoming conceited. So tying that back into this whole claim that this confession is making is that in God's wisdom, righteousness, and graciousness, God allowed Paul to continue to have this thorn in the flesh. He continued to allow him to be tempted to react wrongly to uh, the, the thorn in his flesh, it, it revealed to him his own conceitedness and his, real, his realization that he needed to be humble. It made Paul more constantly dependent for support upon God uh, and all of that. And, and, and more than that, when it comes to just and holy ends, now we get this passage and it encourages us 2,000 years later to rely on God's sufficiency and his grace. So God, again, he's doing one thing to Paul or allowing one thing to happen to Paul, but he's doing a million things at the same time. So wise, righteous, and gracious is our God. So, oh, I didn't answer your question, Anita. He says instead, what verse are we in? Nine. How did I get so lost? Second Corinthians 12, nine. Ah. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the idea here of boasting gladly in your weaknesses is to confess to the world, I am nothing. I can do nothing without God. Let me tell you about me. I can do nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, does that help Anita to answer your question? And to do that, when he does that, it allows him to rather walk in the power of Christ instead. Because when you're being prideful, God opposes you. But when you're humble, God shows you grace. He shows you mercy. And so the more that Paul realizes, I'm not doing any of this. Yeah, I, I saw heaven, or some other guy saw heaven. But I'm not doing any of this. This is all God. All glory be to him. That's the idea here. So God uses a believer's sin for his or her own good. Before we move on to the next idea, let's just think through how does that actually affect and impact you as a follower of Jesus Christ? 
the fact that God uses your sin for your good? How does that impact you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Justin said, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a great point. So Justin said essentially that um, I, it, it helps me realize that he's not done with me, that he is still working on me. How gracious is that, that he takes one believer and continues to work on that believer? And, and Paul says, I'm convinced that what God started in you, he's going to finish, right? So that, that's amazing. That's a great point. Also, just related to that, actually, maybe it's in your mind, so I don't want to steal it. Julian. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so Titus 2.11, you said, uh, talks about how the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. But it doesn't just stop there. It says training us to renounce all ungodliness. And so it, it's an ongoing process of grace in our lives. That's a great point. Yeah, Daniel. Mm. cares for us even when we we disobey him it's not just like I paid for your sin and you're going to grow it's not just that it's oh I paid for your sin and even when you sin I'm going to use that for your benefit mm-hmm. yeah. and that's just more of God being faithful, being loyal, being committed to us so Daniel said essentially it continues to show us God's grace and faithfulness to us he, it continues to show us how he's working in our lives. Yes, sir. Um, it helps to destroy my self-righteousness. So like when mm. I feel like I have victory over a particular sin in my life, then I'm like, oh, yeah, it took me a long time. Right. But when, when God allows me to you know, fall into sin, then I'm like, oh, it, it really is just by Jesus Christ. And I'm able to not only be saved, but it's also protected by having trust in him Yeah. So Michael essentially said so that it, I can, he helps me avoid being self-righteous. Because if you start to master all these sins or think you do, you start, well, you become like the Pharisees. That's essentially what they thought they were doing. Remember that guy when Jesus says, obey these commandments, and he says, all these things I've done from my youth. It's like the audacity of that guy. But that's our tendency to think, oh, yeah, we're doing great. So God's allowing us to sin and face the consequences of it uh, helps us from becoming self-righteous. It also gives the Lord the way that he blesses us through discipline. Hebrews talks about how um, God disciplines his children because they're his children and because he loves them. If he doesn't discipline someone for their sin, that means they're an illegitimate child, is essentially what the author of Hebrews says. So that's another way that he shows us his grace. Now, what shall we say then, (laughs) right? God uses our sin for our good. Shouldn't we sin more so that his grace may abound? No. No, may it never be. Right? Why is that, by the way? Because we understand the idea, but just let's hash it out. Why is it not good for us to sin if we know that God uses our sin for our good? It grieves him. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Yeah. I thought I heard something else over here. No? God hates sin. If we love God, we're not going to sin, at least without any kind of fight, right? Yeah, you shouldn't sin against people that you love. Yeah, amen. Great points. So yes, don't sin, but just be comforted by the reality that when you do sin, that God does something beautiful with it regardless. He does it in spite of you, okay? So God uses a believer's sin for his or her good. The next thing, we'll have to speed run through this, is that God uses everything for a believer's good. Notice on the back page there, just the italicized portion that rounds off that paragraph. So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. So what we're seeing here is kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater. Because if there's anything that we would say that God does not providentially ordain, we'd probably say it's sin. It's the sin of his people, right? He wouldn't allow, he wouldn't make that happen. He wouldn't orchestrate history to make that happen. But we've just proven from the scriptures that God actually does do that.
for his good and greater purposes and for the good of his people. Therefore, if God even providentially directs that, he actually uses all things for the good of his people. All things. And you probably have guessed which passage without even looking we'd be going to. Romans 8.28. One of our most beloved passages, Romans 8.28. The context of Romans 8.28 is essentially the groaning that we experience, the longing that we have for God to restore all things. It says that creation is even groaning. We're groaning for it. And sometimes we can't even pray what we want to pray because we are just so forlorn waiting for Christ's return. And it says that the Spirit in us prays, intercedes on our behalf with groanings that are just too deep for words. Okay? And it's in that context that our beloved Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So first we need to ask, who are those who love God? Amen. So those who obey him. Okay. Well, what else? Believers. Believers? Mm-hmm. You got it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So believe. They're not believers. Believers in who, Tita? And believers in Christ. Because you have people all over the world who are not Christian who say, I, I love God. I love Allah. I love whoever, they're, uh, whoever the deity is that they're at. But the Bible says that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. That says it, they say, it, the Bible says, 1 John says, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. If you do have the Son, you do have the Father. That's what 1 John says. So those who love God, those who truly love God, are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that that's the case is because those who love the Lord have had their hearts transformed. The reason that you and I can love God is because we've been given new hearts. Prior to when we didn't have new hearts, we loved only ourselves. We loved the world. And then when God changed our hearts, then our affections were changed towards him, right? So it's for those people. So God, in this verse in Romans 8:28, narrows down who this promise is for. It's for those who love God. Now, by the way, you might be thinking, but I don't love God perfectly. Well, no one does, right? So praise God that the standard is, and for those who love God perfectly, that's not in there. If you have a new heart, given to you by the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith, then simply you love God because God has given you love, right? So praise God for that. It's for those people, those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Now, if you isolate just that phrase, all things work together for good, then what you might conclude, I think wrongly, is that it's only talking about like the greater good. But if it were only talking about the greater good for just generally, then these qualifiers of for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose really wouldn't be necessary. Because for even unbelievers, God works out everything for the greater good, right? So what this promises in Romans 8.28 is it's not just good in general, it's good for you. God works out all things for your good, for your benefit, for those who love God. And that's an incredible promise that we need to hold on to. If we believe this verse, then what that means is, well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. I've heard people, I've heard one young lady, and like, it doesn't matter who, this was like a decade ago. She said something along the lines of when she was broke up with her boyfriend or some other thing didn't work out with some guy. She said, it's because... God has a better man for me. Have you heard this kind of idea? That may not be the case. That may be that what ends up happening is that she marries some guy that tricked her and ends up being abusive to her. Now we have to believe if Romans 8.28, if she's a believer, that was for her good. That can be hard for us to grasp, right? So for your good doesn't necessarily mean like for the good that you have in your mind. That, that you'll like it, right? So you think, oh, well, God let me lose that job because he's got a better job for me. What happens if you start thinking that way? What will eventually happen to you? If you keep thinking that, well, it's because God has a better circumstance for me according to my 
scales. I start resenting God. Well, what happened, God? Why did you give me a worse job than before? Why did you give me a worse uh, uh, person to marry than what I had before? And it's because we're, base, we're judging his decisions based on our scales, right? But the reality is God knows what's for your good. And the greater good is ultimately becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 29, for, let me read it from verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the reason why God works things or allows you to suffer, allows you to groan in this world, is so that you be made more like Jesus Christ. Who wants anything besides that? What, what would be better than that? A better house? A better job? No. We want to be made like Christ, even if that means being put in harder circumstances. And the reality is it's often the hard circumstances that make us a little bit more like Christ. Suffering is given to us for that purpose, right? So he works out all things, all things for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And by the way, that phrase at the end, kind of indicates for us, I know that I said in the bullet point, believers, but I think that what the confession says is wiser when it says, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect. Because aren't some unbelievers who have yet to believe his elect? Because he's chosen them from all, from all time. So they are his chosen even before they believe. Now they will believe in their lifetime if they're elect. But that also means that he works out for the good of those who maybe don't even believe in him yet. So, you know, just thinking through it, is it true that God works out all things for the good of those who are elect but don't yet believe? And I'd have to think, yeah, I, I think so, because everything that happened up, up into that person's life, up until they believe, was all leading up to that, right? So, uh, we hear, hear stories from people before they came to faith. Oh, my grandma used to take me to church every Sunday. That's part of God's providential work in their life. Um, Paul, rounding up Christians, or Saul, I should say, until God intercepts him on the road to Damascus. In order for Jesus to intercept him on the road to Damascus, he needed to be on the way to Damascus in order for God to save him there. Okay, So, yeah. I would say that God even works it out for the elect who have yet to believe in him for their good. So he works out everything for your good. Now, bring that, bringing that home to like, again, real world application. If it's true that God works out all things for your good, what does that imply for your life day to day? If God works out everything for your good, how should that affect your life every day? Trusting in the Lord more? Amen. Yeah. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. Very good. Somebody once said this, if I knew what God knew, I would want his way 100%. I would want it all the time. Uh, we complain when we don't submit to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, essentially you're, you're seeing uh, the good that God's doing in your life and in the world and try to bring that more about. Good point. And Paul, Paul is a great example of that. What if he was just like, man, I'm not doing anything until this thorn in my flesh is gone. Right? Maybe the gospel doesn't reach us. But because, like what if Paul was just like, you know what, I'm not doing anything until this thorn is removed. Uh, but because he submitted to God who taught him, my grace will be sufficient for you. The gospel has spread, uh, not just with Paul, but the apostles everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, Leslie. Um, that it Very good. So joy and peace that other people don't have. So it's kind of like the other side of what you, what you guys were saying over here. You don't complain. Um, you trust God 
and instead you're filled with joy and peace because it's like these circumstances that I'm in are for my good and they're for uh, God's glory and not just for my good but they're also for God's glory but incredibly God's glory and our good are inseparable right whatever God does for his glory is also for our good that's how wise and gracious God is so when you think about the worst circumstances that either you're facing right now or have faced in the past or will face in the future, you will be girded with strength when you recognize that whatever God allows for you to go through, if you love him, is for your good. It's for your benefit. And it's like, why would I want anything else? Why would I want any other option besides what God, who is most wise, knows is most beneficial for me? And again, it glorifies him at the very same time. So, we looked at our study today. We concluded, God uses a believer's sin for his or her good. God uses everything for a believer's good. I won't be ashamed to say that the main application for everything is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's only applicable to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and who continue by his grace to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because it is those who love God. It is those who are revealed to have been called according to his purposes. And if you believe in Jesus Christ tonight and for the rest of your life, not only will your sins be completely forgiven, but you can have a full confidence that God is for you. He's on your side. And he's going to work out everything in history, even the hardest things, for your benefit. And having put your faith in Jesus Christ... You, you, you continue to thank the Lord for using absolutely everything for your benefit, even your sin. Because what tends to happen is when you sin, sometimes our tendency is not to run straight to God. Oftentimes it's to run to Satan, even though we don't think of it that way, but we want to continue in our sin. He wants to accuse you. Say, you're not good enough to come to God. God says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. As Pastor Corey preached, his steadfast love is always with him. He is always ready to forgive you. He's not the kind of father who's like, talk to me in a day or two. Let me calm down. That's not the way that God is. God is so merciful and he's, he's willing to receive you in complete forgiveness and help you to realize that he used even that garbage that you just did for your good and for his glory. And not just your sin, but your suffering. Remind yourself, whenever you face suffering, this is for my good. God knows what he's doing. He is all wise. He's all gracious and righteous. And he's doing this not among 10,000 other things. He's also doing this for me. And what an amazing God that is. And when you have someone else struggling with sin, remind them. Remind them as their brother and sister in Christ, God, there is, God forgives you in Christ. And God will use this for your good. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you won't face the consequences of your sin. Right? We have a brother who committed such a grievous sin that it really does deserve life in prison. Biblically, it, was, it deserves having a millstone hung around your neck and being dropped off the bridge. But God is gracious to this brother. His sins are forgiven. And tomorrow, he's going to be sentenced. We don't know what that is, but it may well be life in prison. If he goes to prison, it's not going to go well for him. Prisoners do not treat people of this particular sin with mercy. Uh, Corrections officers who are corrupt may also feed into this situation. But God is using it for his good. And he's using it for greater purposes than we can even imagine. There may be people in that prison that the Lord brings to himself as a result of this brother preaching the gospel to them in prison. We don't know. Only God knows. But all we can do is believe what God says in his word. That he works out our sin for our good and he works out even everything, all of our suffering for our good as well. And just finally on a note, if you're having someone suffering, sometimes the best thing is not always to start here, right? Someone just lost somebody. I said, well, God uses it for good, right? They know that theologically, but sometimes you may just need to be there for them. And just like Job's friends when they first started, just keep your mouth shut. 
listen. Be a good listener. As God opens doors and as God heals, you can help them to see the beauty of what you're saying. But you may need to just wait on that, okay? But yes, we do need to teach each other these truths as well. All right, great conversation, y'all. Let me pray and ask God to help us with these things. Our merciful God, how kind you are that you take even our dross and purify us. Lord, we will not sin against you for this purpose, but we recognize that when we do sin against you, that your mercy is more. And not only do you forgive, but what we meant for evil, you always mean for good. And you bring out greater purposes through all of it, O God. We praise you for your wisdom and your grace. Help us to be holy and to cling to you and your perfections and your sovereignty so that we would continue to run hard after you. And Lord, when we suffer, when you put us through situations that hurt, help us to recognize, O God, that you work out all of these things for our good. We need to remember that, O God, because we are frail. We're tempted to cast blame or aspersion on you when in reality you are only doing good. Remind us of that all the time, O God, that we may give you the praise that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right.